Thank you, Josh. Well, let's uh, take our Bibles together and invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis as we continue in our journey through Genesis. We're in chapter 18. Our focus this morning is uh, verses uh, 16 through 33. 16 to the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 18 in the church Bible, if you choose to use that one. You're going to find that beginning on page 13. Page 13 in the church Bible. All right, let's give our attention to God's word being read. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, is great and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. When Ab then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it for, from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, well, Let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. This is God's word. Please join me in a prayer. Uh, we sang a moment ago, Father, that you would show us Christ. Even in this story of judgment, impending judgment. Show us Christ. Father, that's something that your Spirit 
needs to do. And while I have studied and prepared and have things to say, what needs to be heard by all of us is your voice above and beyond, the voice of a mere man accomplishing something in us by your truth that can only be done when the living and active word takes hold of us. So I pray that that would happen, Father. Lord, guide me, guard my tongue, and give us all, Father, that expectancy that we're going to hear from you, even now, overcome in our minds and our hearts any resistance that there might be from hearing from you and set aside in our minds and hearts any opinion about the proclaimer, Lord, that we would seek to hear your voice. Do that, we pray that Christ himself may be exalted among us. We ask it in his name. Amen. Um, several years ago, uh, it was late at night, leaving uh, a Bible study that I was uh, leading here. I uh, was not paying attention, and uh, I saw lights in my rearview mirror. I know I tell stories like this. This probably happens, it sounds like it happens all the time. It doesn't. These are rare. <laughs> uh, but when I saw those lights, I thought, oh boy, judgment. Because <laughs> I looked at my speedometer and uh, I was going to be judged. I knew what was, what was coming. As I pulled over and the officer, uh, she asked me several questions about where I was coming from. I described where I'd been. Was that a Bible study? She said, oh, well, say a prayer for us, would you? And she sent me away with a warning. That was mercy. <laughs> and I was so, so very grateful for that. When we think about the Israelites, they had experienced both judgment and mercy. Uh, they, as a people, had been rescued from Egypt by the Lord's merciful hand, showing his power of judgment against the Egyptians. He had carried them through 40 years of wilderness wanderings and they had observed God's mercy on occasions and his judgment. They'd seen his judgment when for the disobedience of one or a few, the earth opened up and swallowed an entire clan. For desperation, they'd seen mercy when thirsty and water emerged from a rock to quench their thirst. Now here they are after 40 years and the judgment of God had taken an entire generation out from their ranks, leaving their children. Now they're about to cross the Jordan and possess the very land that had been promised to their forefather, Abraham. They'd seen God's judgment, they'd experienced God's mercy, mercy. And in light of that, what must they do? Well, in our text this morning, as we've, we've read this, uh, I would submit to you what we see on display is part of the lesson for the Israelites to know that God is a just God and that He's a merciful God. And that fact would demand something of them as His people. Brothers and sisters, this morning as we uh, unpack this text and look at the details of it, I would suggest to you that 
same truth applies to us. We must rightly understand that God is a God of justice and mercy. And because of that truth, it calls us to a life of righteousness. Well, first of all, as we, we get to this, uh, the first fact that I want to focus on is God is just. Now, I, I want to illustrate justice uh, in, in this sense. And you can imagine the scene, and crimes happen all the time, and uh, we hear about them on the news. But if the owner of a gas station, for example, a gas station at a convenience store, if he's attending this, this establishment and, and that attendant is robbed and murdered, I think we have a certain expectation of what would happen, right? When the, when the perpetrator is caught, we would expect that that individual would be charged with a crime, eventually brought before a court to stand trial. And if the evidence is clear that there are witnesses and there's ballistic evidence matching the weapon used, video surveillance evidence and, and evidence of items in the individual's possession that were the fruit of that, uh, that crime, I think there would be a, a reasonable expectation of a, convi- a, a conviction, an appropriate, an appropriate sentence, murder. Now, likely in attendance at that trial would be family members, right? They would, they would show up, family members of the one who was murdered. They would be friends of the victim there. And they would, they would sit there and relive the horrific events of how their loved one had died. And they'll do it for one reason, one reason only. They want to see that justice is done. They want to see that. And any of us in that circumstance would, would want the same thing. But what if, what if in spite of the weight of evidence, uh, what if uh, in spite of the fact that, that guilt was established for the accused and then the judge simply says to the defendant, when it's all said and done, you are free to go. I think there would be an outcry. People would yell, demand an answer. Where is justice? Where is the justice? Justice cannot ignore evil. Right? We get that. And a righteous judge must judge. Cannot set aside judgment. Or the very character of the judge is called into question. Now as we get to our text, look at verse 17. The Lord said, oh I should provide you with a setting here, because where we began in the chapter, it's talking about men. So just for context sake, three men had appeared to Abraham in the previous section, telling him that indeed there would be a son, and for the sake of Sarah, his wife, she also found out that there would be a son. These three men, among these three men, is the Lord. So we'll say the Lord, a Christophany, a, 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 a manifestation of the Son of God in human form before Abraham's eyes. He's effectively seeing pre-incarnate Christ and speaking with him. He's the one commanding him and speaking to him. And so two of the men head off towards Sodom. The Lord is standing there before Abraham. Verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Verse 20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. Now, 
to this point, what did, what did Abraham know about Sodom? What, what did he know about the city? Well, his nephew Lot lives there. That's what he knows. We're told back in chapter 13 that Lot chose to live there. This was many years earlier. We see from the text in chapter 13, Lot lifted up his eyes. He saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered. And the reason that Lot went in the direction of Sodom was because their herds were, were quarreling, their herdsmen were quarreling, and wasn't enough room dwelling together. So Lot separated from Abraham. Abraham offered him, you, know, you go this way, I'll go that way. Yeah. You go this way, I'll go the other way. Lot chose the Jordan Valley. He saw that it was well watered everywhere, like the Garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. And back in chapter 13, foreshadowing what's about to come, it's in parentheses, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot, we're told, simply chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. So as it seemed to Lot, I could imagine so it seemed to Abraham. Sodom to him perhaps looked like what they imagined about the delightful land that God had prepared for Adam and Eve. What they had imagined. And what they remember having personally experienced living in Egypt in the Nile River Delta. So that's what it looked like to Abraham. And at this point, Lot is now one of the leading elders of the city. We find that at the beginning of chapter 19, verse 1. He's sitting in the gate, sitting at the gate. Now, just so you understand what that means, don't think of Lot sitting at the gate like, you know, the men sitting at chairs in the mall waiting for their wives. That's not the same thing. He's not just killing time. He's not lollygagging about. He's not taking a nap. The, the city gate was the place where the elders of the city conferred together, where they would adjudicate disputes and vet any visitors coming in. So to some degree, Lot has responsibility in Sodom. Abraham knows this. So if we back away from what is about to happen and we just try to put our, our, our heads in, into Abraham's mind, what's he thinking? Why would... Why would the Lord want to judge a city that seems so blessed? Why would he do that? Yet external appearances are certainly not enough. Yeah, it's Lot's home. Yes. Lot is one of the leading men. Yes. But we're told the corruption is very grave. Now, we're not told at this point what that is. We'll get to that in chapter 19. But at this point, the Lord just simply says their corruption is great. It is very grave. And so the Lord says, I will go down to see whether they, people of Sodom and Gomorrah, have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. Done altogether. It means they're the full end, ultimately to their annihilation, if you look up the Hebrew word. So there's this outcry, not necessarily from the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's in effect a cry of distress and that cry is for justice. There is great evil. Justice is not being satisfied. There's an outcry that is coming to the Lord. And so, as I said, the two of the three men proceed towards the city and the Lord remains before Abraham. And so Abraham gets what's going to go, go on here. Verse 23, Abraham drew near, that is to the Lord, and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? The righteous with the wicked. So Abraham has an idea. There's righteous people in this city. Will you sweep them away? Will you bring the same end to the righteous as would 
happen to the wicked? He asks, verse 25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And of course, the answer is yes. The judge of all the earth will do what is just. The psalmist says this, The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people's with uprightness. That's, that's God. God is judge overall because he owns everything. He is the standard of righteousness. There is no understanding of good or evil apart from God himself. He is the judge overall. And because God has made mankind in his image, it's, I believe, imprinted on every human that we long for and look for justice, right? That's the, the people in the courtroom demanding, where's the justice? The thing is, when people deny God, when they deny that God is the supreme judge, what they do is they set themselves up as judge. And what happens? Justice gets corrupted. So we could say even in the city of Sodom, they had a system of justice. They understood what justice was, but it was so, so corrupted that the outcry came to the Lord. We can see this in our own culture, can't we? How justice gets corrupted, how it is devolved, right? Just for an example, if, if you abuse an animal, and there's nothing right about abusing an animal, it's a crime. But this is the, the crazy thing. If you kill an unborn human, you're almost celebrated. That's our culture. We see it, justice gets turned upside down. And those who might oppose the, the destruction of the unborn are regarded as enemies and selfish or moralizing or anti-freedom, or hateful, or what have you. And even in, in matters that are considered immoral, right? For the most part, things that are now outside of our modern legal code, the kinds of things subjected to social pressure and public shame. So, for example, the things that the Bible decries, sexual immorality of all kinds, it, it gets simply excused as, as sexual expression. But, and this is pandemic time, right? Don't wear a mask. You've done evil. <laughs> now, I'm not saying for or against, but the point is that the, the moralizing about that in comparison to a whole host of other things that the Scripture makes very clear, it's twisted and it's turned on its head. God judges justly. And He makes that clear to Abraham. He's the perfect judge. And I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that for us is both terrifying and comforting. Terrifying, terrifying in this sense. The writer of Galatians, the Apostle Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. 
And we're getting a hint, or we'll understand more clearly what is going on in Sodom. For to the one who sows to his own flesh, to satisfy, to indulge his own flesh from the flesh, he will reap corruption. God is the perfect judge. And there was an outcry in Sodom that demanded justice, demanded that God respond. Now, it's terrifying for those who would oppose God. But here's where the good news comes in, and that's really the second heading. So while God is just, and it is good and right that He judges, God is also merciful. I want you to think about how you make choices, how you make choices. Any choice, any decision at all that you make. If you, if you go to a new restaurant, for example, the person in your party, perhaps, who has already been there before you might rec- make a recommendation. Oh, have this. It was, it was great. But if not her, then maybe your waiter. Think about it. Almost every choice we make is in some respect influenced. Everything. Everything is influenced. We're influenced by those we love. We're influenced by our past experiences. We're influenced by our desire to get along with others. We're influenced by our own pride. We're influenced in every single decision we make. There's some factor influencing that. There's nothing that we can do that is outside of external influence. And the only one, the only one who makes choices and decisions without external influence is God. The things that God chooses to do, the things that he has not revealed in advance, like the determination to judge or to withhold judgment for a time. God chooses those things without any external influence, and we have to understand that. Why do I say that? Now, God is about to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. He's told Abraham. Now, think about this. How was Abraham different from the people of Sodom? So we want to rewind a few chapters here. Where was Abraham from? As he was called Abram back then. He was from Ur. Ur is a Chaldean city. Ur is a city that that effective, a civilization effectively that was set up in opposition to God. We'll do it our own way. We want to do our own thing. We're told by the scriptures that, that Abraham was a worshiper of idols or it's implied because his father was. But God chose him. God called him out of her. The Lord set him apart for a purpose. And Abram, Abraham was the beneficiary of God's mercy. Now, we have to ask the question, did, did God see something in Abraham that was special? Was he morally better than others? Well, there's no reason to think that. God's mercy to Abraham was explained in verses 18 and 19. So this is the explanation. Shall I hide from Abraham what, I'm, Abraham what I'm about to do? Verses 18 and 19. Abraham shall surely become a great, nation, a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him. So think about this. The Lord says what he's going to do for and through Abraham. Why? Because he's smart? Because he's talented? Because he's better than the others? Now, that's not what the text says. It says simply, the Lord says, 
for I have chosen him. That's it. God's choice was uninfluenced by anything that Abraham did. He independently of anything else simply chose Abraham. And you could simply say this, for his own sake. That's it. We have to understand the nature of mercy here, brothers and sisters. The idea of mercy is so, so very often misunderstood. And we see this, this misunderstanding in the essence of of when somebody has been, for example, back to the whole crime thing again, convicted of a crime, and now they're serving a sentence and, and maybe seeking parole. There's a, an application made. Um, so the individual appears contrite. They are regretful about the crimes. He or she is regretful about the crimes. And there are appeals made for mercy, you know, and the sentence. Appeals made for mercy on the basis of good behavior. Now, I'm not suggesting that, that in a decision to grant parole, good behavior would not be a good reason. That's how the system works. But if mercy is ever deserved, it's just not mercy. It isn't. It's something else. But it's not mercy. Mercy is God's decision to withhold due punishment, not because of something in the guilty person, but purely on the basis of Him. God showing mercy. That's it. It's not mercy if it's obligated. It's not mercy if it is earned. The Apostle Paul quoting Exodus 33.19. Yeah, uh, this is in Romans 9.15. It's, it's how he forms this. He reveals how the Lord sh shares his nature with Moses. You need to understand something about me, the Lord says to Moses. This is my paraphrase of what's going on here. And he says to him, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now we're looking at the sentence going, but why? God says, I will have mercy on the one I've chosen to have mercy. I will be compassionate towards the one I've chosen to be compassionate to. So God simply decides to be merciful for his own sake. Now, having experienced that mercy, Abraham now appeals to the Lord on behalf of Sodom. See, he sees this city. He sees where Lot is one of the leaders. Lot matters to him. He sees a city that he he himself, by the Lord's hand, had in fact rescued from a, an invading king. Cheddar Laomar, this is back in chapter 14. Abraham helped Sodom, delivered them from Cheddar Laomar. And at that point, apparently Sodom mattered to the Lord. And so what happens here is that the bargaining begins. Will you indeed wipe, sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He's thinking, okay, you've said it's wicked, but there's, there's righteous people there. There's, there's good people there. And maybe he has Lot in mind. But he thinks more than Lot, there's 50 at least. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be, 
Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now Abraham here is appealing to the Lord's justice, but he does not see what the Lord sees. And what he wants is mercy. And of course, of course, the Lord, as the judge of all the earth, he will do what is just. And so he plays along with Abraham. And I don't mean he's toying with him, but he's teaching Abraham something about his nature. And he walks it down from 50. Yes, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place. 45, 40, 30, 20. Verse 32, right down to 10. For the sake of 10, the Lord says, I will not destroy it. Now, brothers and sisters, we've got to get this. God is just, and he will do what is just. He will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. That is true. But none of us, none of us could survive God's justice without his mercy. None of us. Are there 50 righteous people on the face of the planet? Standing apart from the Lord our God, standing apart from anything that he's done for us, standing on our own, anybody standing before the Lord God, is there 50 righteous in all the earth? And the answer to that is no. Apart from God's mercy, there are no righteous people. You see, another aspect of God's mercy and really the other side of the same coin is his grace. Very related ideas. Mercy is not getting the punishment that you deserve. Grace is, in fact, getting favor that is completely undeserved. So, you know, if you've got a billion-dollar debt, mercy wipes that out for no reason, for no reason except the one showing mercy has simply chosen to do it. Imagine if you had that kind of debt. Somebody said, no, don't worry about it. Good. That's mercy. But at that point, you've got zero. <laughs> you've got nothing. You don't have a debt, but you've got nothing. Grace comes along. Here's a billion dollars. Just because. Just because I want to be good to you. Now, what we have in Christ, of course, is infinitely greater than all the wealth in the world. Billions and billions of dollars. That's meaningless in light of the grace that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ. In Christ himself, we have received mercy. God has withheld from us the punishment for a debt to God. That debt is of infinite proportions. And, 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 in so, and in so doing, with that, God never, ever set aside justice. This is the beauty of his justice and mercy. God never, ever set aside his justice. Instead of making you and me pay, and we've got to remember this, we are no more righteous than the Sodomites. Our sins may be different, but we're no more righteous. Instead of, us, instead of making us pay, he, he instead chose to express the full measure of his justice on his son that he sent to be a substitute. I quote this often, but it's the beauty of what is captured in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that I go back to so often. Both the mercy of God expressed, but also the immensity of his grace. For our sake, 
He, that is the Father God, made Him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin. The sinless one was made to be sin by God. So that in Him, the Son of God, we might become the righteousness of God. God's mercy not to pour out His wrath on us. But not only that, to give us the very righteousness of Christ as a gift. Mercy and grace, justice and mercy, all captured in one beautiful verse. And what we have in Christ is, a, is an undeserved gift of infinite proportions. As John the Apostle wrote in his prologue to his own gospel in John 1.16, for from his fullness, that is Christ, we have all received grace upon grace. And we could just keep that going, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, infinitely grace. Grace multiplied to us because God is merciful. And that brings us to the, really, what is demanded of us? What is demanded of Abraham? God's people are called to righteousness. It's the third heading. On uh, June 24th uh, of this year, you may recall, 98 people lost their lives when the Champlain Towers South, this is a 12-story condominium, it collapsed in Surfside, Florida. 98 people died. Now, in the investigation around this tragedy, it would seem that the cause was degraded concrete, water penetration coming in, and the steel getting corroded. Now, if you happened to be in or near that building before the 24th, it would have looked just fine. It would have seemed rather normal, quality building. The, underi the underlying reality was that it lacked structural integrity. Now, integrity, according to the dictionary, is a state of being, um, of not being whole, right? Or, I'm sorry, this integrity is the state of being whole. So when you lack integrity, you lack wholeness. Integrity is the state of being whole and undivided, undivided. So, I chose this word. This word came to mind in thinking about what God commanded for Abraham and his descendants. The word integrity. So there's an outward appearance of something, but internally, does it agree? Does it agree with what you see? So the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So the Lord here reveals to Abraham what he's about to do. He's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. So why, why reveal it to Abraham? Why does he need to know? Well, we're told in the text, because the Lord has chosen him to become a great and mighty nation, verse 18, and because it will be in him, in Abraham, that all the nations will be blessed, meaning that God will provide salvation, being blessed, he will pro provide salvation to the nations through his offspring. Now, to make sense of that, 
I'm going to remind you how this will happen. And this is ultimately explained by the Apostle Paul in Galatians and reflecting on what, what this promise that God made to Abraham was. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, he was told. How does that work? The Apostle Paul's explanation in, in Galatians chapter 3. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And hear what the Apostle Paul says. It does not say and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring who is Christ. So the blessing, the salvation of the people of the world comes through a single offspring of Abraham who is Christ. So in the same way that he declared Abraham righteous because he believed, that's back in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6, the same way that God declared Abraham to be righteous, Abraham believed and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. The same way that that happened, that he believed in the promise of God. We who believe in the promise of God, revealed in the offspring who is Christ, we also are declared righteous. That's the declaration. That's the outside. That's what everybody sees. God says, this is my righteous person. So then it follows, verse 19. Again, back to being counted righteous, looking to the promise, saying, Jesus is the one who is the Son of God. In him is my righteousness. That's, that's effectively a, a stated reality. You are righteous when you have trusted in Christ, but it ha must follow. Verse 19, he commanded his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what, has, what he has promised him. The connection between what is declared about Abraham must be followed up with a, a reality in Abraham's life and his offspring of how he lives before the Lord. So what is Abraham going to say to his son Isaac about the Lord? He's going to tell him that the Lord made a promise and that he is merciful to save. And what will his son say to his children? And what should be passed down generation after generation? That God made a promise and that he is merciful to save. And so the Lord is saying to Abraham, and he is to teach this to his children, because I call you righteous, be righteous. Because I call you righteous, be righteous. So believing the promise of God, it follows that Abraham and all of his offspring would, would cling to the promise and live their lives as marked by righteousness and justice. So think of it this way. If righteous behavior was not the result, the outworking of God's declaration of righteousness, what does that declaration mean? If righteous behavior isn't the outcome of God saying, this is my righteous person, and righteous behavior does not flow from that declaration. What does that declaration even mean? And that's what the Lord is telling Abraham. You shall command your children to live righteously and, and be just. This is for the Israelites as they were hearing the story, but this is also for us today. If you have been set apart by God for salvation in Christ, we have been set apart then we've been set apart in order to reflect his character. And if you're a child of God, 
This should never be far from our minds. If you're a child of God, then you've been set apart to imitate Him. The Apostle Paul exhorts in Ephesians chapter 5, 1 and 2, he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And we get this. We get this picture. Our children imitate our behavior, right? Good and bad, right? And he's saying, as your child of God, be an imitator of your Father in heaven as a beloved child. And, how does that look? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you want to know what this looks like? To imitate the character of God. Walk in love. And what's the example? Like Christ did. He gave himself up for us. He laid down his life for us. So if you've been declared righteous in God's sight, because you believed in Christ, or if you believe yourself to having been declared righteous in God's sight, let me put it that way. If you think you've looked to Christ and are included in the family of God, but there is no desire for righteousness in you, it begs the question, do you actually believe in Christ? And while I think you all get this, our culture, broadly speaking, is full of people who self-identify as Christians. But they don't care what the Bible says. They don't care in their character to imitate God as dearly loved children. They don't care about what the Word of God says. And while the culture presses in on us to bend and mold ourselves, and while we find that we sometimes stumble and are undiscerning. As true children of God, sealed in the family of God by the Holy Spirit because God has awakened you to put your faith in Christ, there's a kind of motivation in you that says, I want to be holy. I want to be righteous. As Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That's God's mercy. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. That's what Jesus wants for us, brothers and sisters. We've been chosen to bear fruit. We've been shown God's mercy to reflect the character of God. And listen, if you're in that place this morning where, where maybe you've been in a season of of prolonged disobedience, that's not too late. Confess your sins to the Lord. Repent of where you have ignored His truth. The Bible says He is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So it's not too late. This exhortation is for you if you've been wandering. And believer, if you've been following and pursuing holiness, pursue it all the more. We have been chosen to bear fruit. The Apostle Paul says in explaining the very undeserved nature of God's gifts, the faith to believe, the grace to be saved. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for 
good works. And know this, God has a list for you to walk in them. It says, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. And brothers and sisters, I think the way we, we reflect the character of God is acknowledge in our minds and our hearts before the Lord, what do you have for me today? What good work have you called for me to walk in? So we have a choice, brothers and sisters. We have a choice. But it's really no choice at all. See, genuine faith in Christ compels us to behave in a way that is consistent with what God has declared to be true. And that compelling power is our freedom from the consequence and the power of sin. And it is anchored in the cross of Christ. And it is applied to us by the Holy Spirit who dwells in all who belong to him. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians, you were called to freedom. Brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, that is to indulge your appetites, but through love serve one another. Abraham and all of his offspring, and we are his offspring by faith in Christ. We are to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, by loving your neighbor as yourself. Now listen, I've said it, but I want to say it again. It is not something that we can do by pure force of willpower. Apart from Christ, we do not have even the desire. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we do not even have the slightest inclination towards righteousness. But here's the exhortation from Hebrews 12. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. We've got to turn our backs on sin because it's there, isn't it? It's every single day, every single moment we're tempted with, oh, you could go this way and that'll feel good. That might, that might be good in the moment. And we've got to lay those aside. How? How do we lay it aside? By looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. By looking to Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, he endured that cross. He despised the shame. Looking to Jesus. That's, that's our power, brothers and sisters. We can't do this on our own. But, but the promise from God of being called righteous is a promise with power in Christ himself. Brothers and sisters, we embrace that. So, God is just bad news for sinners and it's bad news for all of us but it, it it compels us to look for good news and the good news is this god is merciful he is merciful to call us to himself to put our sins on the son of god and to declare us righteous in his sight and now because of what god has done for us both pouring out his justice on his son and pouring out his mercy upon us we're called to live righteously and we can because we're in christ because we have Jesus, because we have the Word, because we have the Holy Spirit. So hold on to that promise. Live by that promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the promise that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we're called to live righteously, we do not do that on our own, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the power that you give to us. So Lord, we just con continue to pray. Keep us fixing our eyes on Jesus. When we're distracted by things around us, Lord, would you drive us back to look to Jesus? When we find temptations around us, drive us back to your people who are, who are here to drive us back to Jesus, to point us to your word, to stir us up to love and good works. 
God, remind us that our only success in this world to fulfill what you have called us to do is by simply looking to Jesus, the single offspring of Abraham, the one who went to the cross, the one who purchased our redemption, the one who is now seated at your right hand, who is interceding right now. Father, thank you for the promise that we have in Christ. I pray that you would glorify him through us. That's our desire. And we pray in his name. Amen.